ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. What is it about Tasmania that excites scientists so much? Well, Hobart is Science City, as we've said on The Science Show before. Just look around. So many labs, CSIRO, amazing animals, and also top 100 scientists. Elizabeth Blackburn, Nobel laureate. Derek Denton, founder of The Flory. Leela Landowski, Eureka finalist and brain whiz. Grote Reba, an inventor of radio astronomy. On and on. No wonder Gail McCullum moved there with Cosmos. Hello, Robin Williams. Good to be with you again. Yes, Cosmos, one of Australia's very few homegrown science magazines still going, and they've just scored the 100th edition and counting. The editor is Gail McCullum, and she's from one of our journalistic royal families. How long have you been editor now? Four years, give or take. And you've just reached and passed the 100th edition with the most wonderful cover, which we'll describe in a minute but the theme was hope why did you choose that well i think science is one of the most hopeful possibilities we have on the planet it's our best chance for our best future and it's our only chance for any future and actually i think scientists and what they do exhibiting daily commitment to hope every day they go to work in a variety of different fields whether you think about it or not thousands of people go to work to solve a problem that they think is going to make the world better and they're often right Aren't they just doing science for science sake? Science for science sake still leads to some outcomes. Famously, many of the great science discoveries come as mistakes, epiphanies or things that were being searched for on the way to something else. I mean, a lot of people argue about space research at a time when we've got so many problems down here that need solving. I don't think it's a binary choice. I don't think it has to be either or. Humans are inbuilt for curiosity. We're inbuilt to try and discover. And who knows what collateral information we'll discover along the way. Now, you appealed to your readers for evidence of their own hope. What sort of replies did you get? We got a lot of fabulous children considering what they wanted. A lot of them involved flying cars, which is, again, something personal to me. I'm very glad that people want flying cars as well. And a lot of them facing the things of climate and offering suggestions or solutions for things that might help keep us on this planet in a habitable way. Why do you like flying cars? Because aren't they bad enough in gridlock, especially in big cities? Maybe unlike Hobart, where you're living, but imagine them flying around as well. Well, look, it's a bit of a joke on my part. In the 60s or in the, you know, in the early 70s, that was going to be the idea. We were going to have flying cars. The world was going to look like the Jetsons. You think about Star Trek. A lot of things have come to pass as a result of that, but a few of the things haven't. I love the idea if you think about the Jetsons and you think about their maid, Rosie, you know, that was something we all thought was going to happen. Our robot maids were going to come and make life easier. Of course, we now do have our robot maids in Roombas, but Actually, that computing problem, that robotics problem remains the same. Robots are good at things that we find quite hard to do. They're actually not so great at doing things we find really easy to do, like emptying the dishwasher. It remains one of the great problems of the robotic era. Gail, you're from one of the great journalistic families of Australia. The name Mungo McCullum is, of course, ingrained on me because I knew old Mungo because he was there in the ABC In the beginning, directing television, the first ever, I think, ABC television news program. And there's a picture of him on the third floor at Ultimo 
pointing at a very startled Prime Minister Menzies, <laughs> as if Mungo is in charge of the wonderful new studio. Did you know him well? I did. I had the great pleasure of the wonderful lunches on his balcony with Polly in Balmain. And he was a very graceful and gorgeous man. People might not know he was also a poet. He wrote a number of fiction books and a memoir. A man I love and I know he introduced you to particular kinds of technology. I've never met a man better with a fountain pen and less interested in telephones than, than him. And he was a truly superlative letter writer. So I treasure the letters I still have, even though we lived in the same city. He just <laughs> jot off a letter to brighten my day. Mungo McCullum is a famous name in the family. Why aren't you called Mungo as well? Well, luckily, I am a woman, and there was some debate about that it had to be a man. There was a suggestion, I'm told, that Mungalina was on the possible names list for me, so I thank my mother dearly for that not being the outcome that occurred. But it does mean there aren't any Mungos left in the world. You know, maybe there'll be some more in the future. We're talking about this because it shows a great range of family interests and indeed humour. And that is clear in the magazine and the 100th edition, absolutely delightful with a huge range of topic from animals to space. And even you've got a particular one which shows there's not just STEM, but STEAM, in other words, art mixed up amongst the science, technology and mathematics and such like. And the cover, you write a long piece on the cover and how it came to originate. The cover is full of the absolutely vibrant colours and fruit and water. What does it represent? Well, I think in the end, science is about telling a story. It's about answering questions and trying to solve mysteries. It is the best puzzle game we'll ever have. It is the best escape room that exists. It's just happening in real time. But in the end, it's about taking material and trying to build something with it, building a cohesive set of ideas or set of explanations. I love Jenny McCracken came up. We gave her a brief for what we wanted it to be, that idea idea of what's possible, what we've achieved, and there were some things that we wanted to include in that, a famous success story, a humpbacks, but of course there are big issues of our time, renewable energy, space, medicine, all of these things. And she came up with the concept of having this kind of reverse paint coming up through the cover, taking these raw materials and turning into this total universe. I will say that the cover was five metres high, is five metres high, and those of you who are in Adelaide are most welcome to go to the Royal institution and see it. It's a really striking piece of art. Marvellous, isn't it? Now, the challenge is, with all this variety, which represents true nature in a magazine, you are asking, to some extent, a challenge for the reader to concentrate and have the fun of exploration. Do you think 21st century readers are equipped to do it? I certainly hope so, Robin, because if they're not, I'm out of a job. I think that we're all seeking stories. Well, I'm certainly seeking stories that show me the path to the future. You know, we have a great deal of concern about it for all sorts of reasons, all of them real. And I feel like we need to be able to tell the stories about how that future can be a good one, a sustainable one, one that excites us. And it is the science of everything. So it's a job. You've got to be everywhere looking at all the things. And I agree with you Robin. Smart is great. I love smart. Smart and funny is also great. does tend to be a family trait and I hope that what the magazine does for readers, not just people who are scientists, it's all for a general reader, is it just gives people an insight into that smart, funny, amazing work. Indeed. Well I've always found it very, very easy to work through the magazine 
because the headlines are there, the individual articles, plain, and they keep you up to date. Everything from mountain possums, <laughs> pygmy possums, and as I said, space stuff. So you know where you are, but it is like a, a very good book, a concentrated read, and whether the young people have got time to apply, you know, a good hour spent on that magazine is very much rewarding. Have kids got an hour these days? I grew up in a house that had New Yorkers, so I came to... That takes days. <laughs> and they come out every week, Robin. Goodness me, it's a full-time job. So I grew up loving the cartoons. I grew up in a house with National Geographic, so of course you love the picture spreads and all those things. I think there are things in every magazine that you can enjoy in the moment because you know you're interested. But I hope that the gift of it is that you can come back to it suddenly and see other things as you get to them as you're interested. I hope it's a mix of things that are long and short. I hope some of it tends more towards the funny and some of it more towards the world changing and the life changing. And I think of it actually less as a book and more as a shelf of books that each story has the opportunity to open that narrative. So I do think that people can get drawn in. It's part of magazine craft, I hope, that people can be drawn in by the illustration, by the words. Once you get caught, once you're hooked on the story, then how can you not finish it? I always need to know the end. And of course, the 101st edition is out. And what about the 102nd? Well on the drawing boards, lots of fun things to look forward to. Again, it never stops happening, does it? I was thinking about one of the reasons that I think hope was really important for us. In two, you know, The first issue came out and you were very involved in Cosmos's gestation and birth. 2006, if you think back to 2006 and think about what we've learned, what we've gained. Look at the advances in cancer treatment, in streamlined medical treatment. We no longer treat our cancer, we treat my cancer. Look at the advances in renewable energy. I'm hoping 102 through 199 all look at those advances issue by issue. And finally, of course, you're also online, are you not? We are. We have a fabulous daily site. We have a newsroom of seven journalists working out of South Australia and Melbourne. And, yeah, it's important. Without being too mawkish about it, the facts matter. Words have power. And the stories we tell about the future we're going to get, we're going to get the future we deserve with our learning, with our knowledge and with our belief in the facts. And that's what we hope we're doing every day at Cosmos. Thank you, Mangalina. Oh, God, never again, Robin. <laughs> oh, I hope she will. Gail McCullum, editor of Cosmos magazine in Hobart, where she lives and works. And yes, I am involved here and there with both the Royal Institution in Australia, based in Adelaide, and the Science Media Centre there. In Hobart, there's that huge famous bridge connecting both sides of town across the mighty Derwent River. Infrastructure. Bridges and buildings. In Britain last year, there was a massive scandal, still on, about hospitals and schools built 30 years ago with that bubbly concrete. Now it threatens to crumble, so hundreds of those schools were closed with little notice. Campbell Middleton is a professor of such things at King's College in Cambridge. But you come from Australia, you come from Tasmania, do you not? Yeah, they occasionally let people out once or twice a year, so... That was many years ago. And How long have you been here? Since 1984 I first came over. What's so much fun about Cambridge for you? It's the mixture and the diversity of the people you meet and the science and the technology that's going on. But also I think the other thing is the quality of the students. That 
is really why this place buzzes because we're fortunate, it's a privilege to have such talented students that come in who do all the real work. Many from Australia? A few. Obviously at postgraduate level we get a lot of the PhDs coming over as they aim for either America or smarter ones, pick the UK I should add. But occasionally you can get the undergraduates as well. So And you get that sort of interaction even in engineering and architecture? I have to smile when you say that. Of course we do. Talented young students and yes, just because you're in the sciences doesn't mean you can't communicate and have fun as well. No, exactly. Have you specialised in bridges mainly? Yes, for the majority of my career I always describe myself as a bridge engineer, but more recently I've moved into wider aspects of the whole construction industry and the construction of the built environment, which provides the opportunity to really address some of the major challenges facing humanity. Because if you think about it, all these key areas from the climate change emergency, but also in the quality of life, boil back to the transport systems, which we build as the civil engineers, to the energy that we need. The power stations and the wind turbines are all built by the construction industry. And then also the housing, the water supply, and so on. I get excited about the opportunity for our industry to really be the provider of many of the solutions we must and will need for addressing all these challenges. I've heard lots of ideas, and I broadcast them, of smart brains saying what's possible, but then to get the traction with the outside world of applying some of these ideas so that they fit together and you can see the reality of a better life. How's that happening? You're absolutely right. That is one of our greatest challenges, and I would argue that much of the challenge we face is getting the actual evidence and the data that provides for the policymakers and the politicians the evidence of what improved outcomes can be. And that's something where all the excitement at the moment with big data, AI and machine learning is highlighting the need for that fundamental data. The Facebooks and the Amazons and the Googles have been on that for years and scooping up all this data but you'd probably be shocked and surprised to see how much of our built environment, our bridges, our tunnels, our roads, our power stations, how much we actually know about how they perform and how close to the limit they are, how much residual life they have, how are they deteriorating, all these issues. We're only just beginning to recognise how important that area is and how we need to use the new sensors. We need to collect the data and most importantly, know how it informs decisions. Well, one of the things that's a paradox, which we all know about, is when you have firms, you want to have a building put up or you want to have an area, a council chooses a firm is going to put up the latest road conjunction, if you like, and what you want is something we can afford and the money rules at all costs and also the speed at which you can get it done so that people stop complaining about disruption to their lives. Those two things, money and convenience, keeps getting in the way of progress in some ways. Do you agree? Yes, in principle, but neither of them should be a barrier to what could be done because the reality is we're going to build, we're going to do these things anyway. Our argument is by a little bit of thought, better understanding of what's actually going on and why, we can dramatically improve it. And we're actually getting evidence right now on things like building just your normal commercial building in London or Sydney or anywhere else around the world. The industry has a reputation for, it comes in over cost and over time in many cases. Now, whether that's actually true, there are various people trying to collect that data, 
But our argument is that if we redo things in a slightly different way, more attention to thinking up front, planning up front instead of the pressures to deliver yesterday, that little bit of sitting back and reflecting can absolutely transform the outcomes. And there are opportunities to dramatically improve speed at which things are done, the quality of which things are done. And that, of course, leads to dramatic savings in costs. So it's more about, as you said, changing the mindset of accepting that, oh, we need it the cheapest. What we really want is the best long-term value, and that's a mindset change. Let me give you a couple of examples and ask you for a couple of examples of the sort of thing you're talking about. The University of Technology in Sydney, I have been in a department of the studying of building research where they've got examples of seaweed that's been changed around to be a substitute for concrete. Okay, you may mix it with supplies of seashells, which are abundant as a result of the fishing industry, and normally they're thrown away. And you then add various things like collected glass, perhaps. Mm -hmm. So that sort of thing's going on. And then in Western Australia at Curtin University, they're looking at the trackless tram. Why do you want it trackless? Well, Professor Peter Newman says, so that you don't have a track down which then determines how the city is going to develop rather like in Los Angeles, you put out the cars because all the roads were there and you had no choice. So you've got that flexibility in both putting the buildings up and also the other example of having transport doing in a more flexible way. What are your examples? I mean, that's a lovely example of two very innovative, novel ideas which are changing the mindset of what's possible. The interesting thing with both of those will be, will the clients, will the governments implement them and take that step into the dark, you could say, being prepared to take a risk. And that's why we need to be collecting the evidence, being prepared to take a trial, demonstrate the tram system you're talking about in Western Australia, we'll do it, build a small one, show the outcomes, measure the benefits. And that's the sort of entrepreneurial approach we need to get at the policymaker and the client side to do that. I would argue that if we just keep going with the more of the same, we're never going to make progress. Give me some examples from your own field. Well, one of the interesting ones is in the sensor technology and what we can measure now of the performance of structures, for example. And the simple example we do is we've been monitoring a couple of rail bridges in the UK using fibre optic technology, the same as you use in your telephones and the internet. But these have the capacity to be able to measure strain and temperature over long distances. And by using them appropriately, we can actually measure now how a bridge deforms, how it strains, and from that infer what's the loading on it and infer how safe it is, things like that. And through doing that, we've demonstrated that on the bridges we've been monitoring, both very new ones, recently constructed, that actually you've got a massive reserve of strength that was really not recognised. So overnight, if we can build up the confidence to use this data to reflect on our structures, I would argue that you could dramatically change the way we design things. You'd save enormous amounts of money, materials and carbon by beginning to realise just how much over-design there is in the world and yet we won't be affecting safety if it's done properly. But before we can do that... We've got to build up enough evidence and collect enough evidence to have the confidence. It's not just one or two examples. We've got to do this. And that's using a transfer of technology from the telecommunications industry into the civil engineering industry is one example of it. Are the authorities, the politicians and the planners listening? Some are. 
not enough in my view, but then we equally as academics have failed too often to demonstrate value. We've got excited about a technology, shown some measurements, but we have to be able to collect the evidence to demonstrate that true value and not lose sight of that in the end is what we've got to do. So, yeah, it is a big challenge. There are examples all around the world of this, but interestingly in sectors like the offshore oil and some of the private areas where there's big money and they appreciate you stop or interrupt production or operation for just a short period of time, it adds up very quickly. The challenge in the public sector and things like infrastructure is, well, who's paying for the delays when you close the M5 in New South Wales or the M25 in London, because it's all the individual people that are disrupted. There's no single person collecting the money. You do that to an oil company because you've shut down oil production and that's big money. And that's one of the challenges to recognise the value to society and we as the clients and the government need to take on board that wider recognition that this is society's money. But if you don't take the long term, for instance, looking at the ways in which, say, disease can predominate, and a friend of mine wrote a book called The Coming Plague 30 years ago, and guess what? (laughs) Two years ago, there it was. And similarly with the kind of disasters that happen with infrastructure, not being able to deal with floods or fires for that matter, that you end up paying far more, the trillions, than if you'd actually slowly war the delays and all that sort of thing. But you come from Tasmania. There's a wonderful novel called Bruni, (laughs) based on Bruni Island, where a great big bridge suddenly is built by various means. Heather Rose wrote the book, and she's from Tasmania as well. It's very interesting exercise in looking forward. What sort of things would you like listeners to think of in terms of, if you like, what Barry Jones was doing with the Commission for the Future, imagining what their world might look like if they had the choice, really, to look forward to it? It's a pretty challenging question, but I think one thing that strikes me in my field, in Bridges, the one thing as you look around the world is what a place maker and what a incredible influence they have. And you think of the number of cities around the world where the big iconic bridge is the symbol of the structure from Tower Bridge in London, be it Sydney Harbour Bridge in Sydney, be it California with the Golden Gate. But secondly, how they bring communities together and provide a complete transformation in the life of people. And it's not only places like many years ago, they built what's called the Blinking Eye in Newcastle across the river there, joining what was the Gateshead area to the other side and that absolutely led to a dramatic transformation in the regeneration of an area that had been run down somewhat and the city changed enormously. But you go out, there's a wonderful charity called Bridges for Prosperity which goes round the world to developing countries and helps out with some often trained engineers to work with the local community to replace an old rope bridge across a huge gorge which children are trying to cross to get from one side to the other can absolutely transform the lives of so many people. This sort of ability to really improve the quality of life by thinking about that's the one side. But the other thing, as you said, it's really thinking for the long term. And I don't think we do enough of that. It's all focused on this year's budget. But again, it's a mindset. And in my own experience, it's always individuals. One leader, one individual, be it a politician, be it in a government body, be it in a company, you get those visionaries that make things happen. 
and they're the people to go and line up next to and follow, and we need more of that. And Australia's got many examples of that. I keep looking at many examples of what Australia's been doing in infrastructure. And I was out there last year on a visit and fascinated by the big build in Victoria. Tens of billions of dollars being redirected towards redeveloping the trams, the level crossings, bridges, the rail system out there. And everywhere I went around the country, people said, look at that as an example of what's possible of changing the mindset of how you deliver infrastructure, how you manage it, how you invest thinking about just how do we do things better. I have a number of roles over here where we're often looking to Australia for that innovation and willingness to just let's show how we can do things differently. The importance of leaders and inspiration reminds me of the top 100 scientists making things happen and following through. Cam Middleton from Tasmania is Professor of Construction Engineering at King's College, Cambridge, The Science Show on RN. And so to photosynthesis, the way plants make food for themselves from CO2 and water with help of sunlight and food for us. But did you see just before the end of last year, Nature, the journal, published a discovery that the most ancient signs of such photosynthesis could have been discovered in Australia, in the Northern Territory, dating back 1.75, that's one and three quarter billion years Well, there are plenty of ancient fossils in this land, but also very young scientists, such as the superstar of STEM, Dr. Taylor Siska, a postdoc at the University of Sydney. Yeah, so my main work is trying to engineer a system to help plants grow more efficiently. We eat plants as food, but plants actually produce their own food through photosynthesis. They take light and carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and they turn it into sugar that they then use for energy. But that process actually isn't very efficient in plants. It's more efficient in algae. Does it need to be more efficient? Well, generally in order to grow more crops. Um, ah, for us now. Yes, for us, it's not yeah. for the poor plants. <laughs> they're doing all right, but you're telling them that they're not. Well, yeah, it's a bit like that. So evolutionarily speaking, way, way, way back in the day, plants were actually much better at it. But as the atmosphere has changed, as conditions have changed, the proteins in plants haven't quite kept up because they haven't had to. But we've put some particular pressures that evolution hasn't been able to respond to in quite the same way. So now we have to try to come up with a different solution. I'm going to make you cross and I'm going to refer to Canberra, the ANU, where they're doing all sorts of things with several different ways to improve photosynthesis by a factor of almost four, four times more productive, which would make crops so much more valuable. Are you in connection with them as well? This project is a collaboration with the Centre for Photosynthesis at ANU, so we actually are collaborating with folks there on this project. Because I'm a protein engineer, I engineer proteins, I am not a plant person. We're moving into plants, which will hopefully be early next year, that's going to be down in Canberra. How do you engineer proteins, which are gigantic molecules, to get them exactly the right shape for them to do their work? So it all comes down to the DNA. Your cells are full of proteins. And in order for your cells to produce those proteins, they need instructions that come in the form of DNA. And we understand how your DNA relates to a specific protein. And so we can change the DNA sequence to have uh, slightly different features in a protein. You add a bit of Lego to the other end bit. (laughs) 
something like that. <laughs> what are your successes so far? Well, the system we're trying to build is kind of a copycat of a system that exists in algae. So the whole issue with photosynthesis, the reason why it's not as efficient is there's a particular protein that's supposed to take the carbon dioxide and turn it into other things that become sugar. And that's kind of the cog in the machine. That's the bottleneck. So we're trying to improve the activity of that protein by kind of building it a home office using a big protein shell. So think of the shell as like your four walls and the protein goes inside and we're trying to engineer those four walls to be optimal. So like think about it like a snack drawer or like a good chair or like one of those curved monitors in like an office, just something to improve your activity. So, so far we know we can make the four walls. We know we can get the other protein inside. So a lot of our efforts now are trying to optimize the environment for more activity and try to make that protein work even faster and more efficiently. When you've done that, will you give me a ring? Sure. <laughs> Hopefully early next year. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Dr. Taylor Siska at the University of Sydney. And now it is early next year, 2024. So we're standing by for news. Something that can be old news is the American Civil War. But it's also relevant today. Too many wars around right now, aren't there? And botanist Dr. Peter Bernhardt knows why we should learn from them and those of yesteryear. Richard Evan Schultes, one of Harvard's finest professors of botany, once observed that historians stumble because they know so little about botany. Let's consider that statement. Aren't most wars all about depriving the enemy of his own landscape? As past conflicts required the resource provided by plant-based foods, drugs, fibers, and timbers, the American author Judith Sumner has taken all of this into account in her most recent book, Plants in the Civil War, A Botanical History. The author does a brilliant job over eight chapters covering less than 200 pages. She preserves the authenticity by including many illustrations derived from science and agricultural books, as well as newspapers of the same era. Miss Sumner's bibliography draws on almost 300 documents from official government pamphlets to ladies' magazines. She weaves together the accessibility and application of native and introduced species used by plantation owners, their slaves, and the armies of the North and South. The text filled my head with images of desperation, a wife of a Confederate soldier wore an absurd hoop skirt of 13 meters of cotton fabric, but she turned her flower garden over to opium poppies. Morphine was the only dependable painkiller for the wounded and was in short supply due to blockades. In contrast, here is a slave woman serving dinner in bowls made only of the hard rinds of bottle gourds, Lagunaria cicerearia, but she chews the roots of cotton in secret. The gossip hole they contained probably limited her ability to produce more children for her master to sell. Why do native blackberries, Rubus species, receive 10 references in the index 
They were a famine food by the war's end and quick to colonize abandoned fields. The trees were at war. Sumner reminds us that at a specific gravity of 0.55, the wood of black walnut, Juglans nigra, was so shockproof and rot-resistant it made the best gunstocks. Wooden legs for amputees were carved first of native oaks, but some preferred black tupelo, Nisa sylvatica, because it was cross-grained and less likely to split. Using iron as a mordant, the bark and shells of butternut, Juglan cineraria, gave Confederate uniforms their characteristic gray color. Sumner describes American botanists at war. Henry Ravenel made his slaves collect fungus specimens before losing his fortune. In contrast, Asa Gray, Harvard's first professor of botany, kept up his correspondence with Charles Darwin, and the two of them celebrated the end of slavery in paragraphs alternating with descriptions of pollination in orchids and primroses. But you must be asking, what is all this to an Australian, especially one who remembers the Ken Burns documentary? I think there are at least two lessons here for you. First, people make the same mistakes in different places in different times. When Judith Sumner writes that by the 1860s, the American South had already deforested over 60 million hectares because they found it easier to clear more land for reasons of economy and soil fertility, it may remind you of Queensland and northern New South Wales during the 20th century. While Southerners appreciated the majesty of their native trees, they also aped the British taste for exotics from Asia. That meant importing what became in face of camphor laurels, Cinnamomum camphora, and, uh-oh, polonias. They also took an unfortunate fancy to Australia's white cedar, Melia asderach, which also escaped. I was surprised to learn that the beloved and invasive Cherokee rose, Rosa levigata, of Br'er Rabbit's Briar Patch, came from China. Second, yes, America has entered a bizarre age in which some think they must protect children by banning books from school libraries. I'll bet you think that includes this book because it details the daily mistreatment of a race and the inadequate care of military casualties including the use of extracts of woodland herbs for outbreaks of venereal disease. Well, you're wrong. I asked the author, and she reminded me that Civil War history remains a respected business and brand of scholarship in the American South. School boards and parents have not messed with her plans in the Civil War to date. Think about that should you ever visit New Orleans. Residents still drink their Civil War daily blending of coffee with the roasted root of European chicory, 
Secorium intibus. Pure coffee was another wartime shortage. Mixed with chicory, it's the historical signature still preferred by its residents of all colors and tourists like me. Peter Bernhardt, botanist at St. Louis, Missouri. And the book is Plants in the Civil War, a history by Judith Sumner. And yes, with the wars on now, the same terrible experiences are being repeated. Won't we ever learn? And so to the Caribbean, from which the West Indian team now with us has come. Pauline Newman, who seems always to be visiting faraway places, sent this report from Aruba. It's near the coast of South America and Venezuela, has fine white sand and lots of turtles. Welcome, my name is Tobia de Shisholo and I have started to come here in 2015 as a student, then as a guest lecturer and now as a full-time lecturer at the University of Aruba. And I hope to stay here for a long time. I really feel at home here. I take it you come from somewhere in Europe? Yes, indeed. I was born in Belgium and my mother is from Belgium, but actually was raised in Italy. I studied environmental sciences for my bachelor in the Netherlands, where I came actually for the first time to Aruba through my bachelor thesis on marine pollution. And then I went to do my master and specialize in marine ecology. I'm also starting now my doctorate, my PhD studies. So I hope to really look at the interaction between the people and coral reefs and how can we make that more sustainable. So it's like a wonderful way to combining your passion with your work. Now, I believe actually that the coral in the Caribbean is in danger. Yes, for sure. We have seen a rapid decline in live coral cover in the past 40, 50 years in the Caribbean. It's one of the most impacted areas in the world, especially compared also to the Pacific, the Great Barrier Reef and Papua New Guinea, where it's a lot more healthy. Here we have seen rapid decline and a rise growth of macroalgae in compared to corals. What's going on? That's a very good question that has like a multifaceted answer because it's, of course there is many different stressors that are impacting coral reefs. Ecological stressors related to climate change, rising temperatures, increasing intensification of storms, but there is also a lot of social related stressors. Rapid population growth, rapid tourism growth and not supporting sanitation facilities that results in chronic pollution of nutrients. There is also industry pollution that varies across islands. If there is agriculture, if there is more industry development along the coastline, or, for instance, recreational activities, like a lot of boating, the noise, the propellers, can cause a lot of sediments resuspension, and that can also impact coral reefs. And if the coral reefs are in trouble, what implications does that have? Well... There is a lot of ecosystem services linked to coral reefs. They provide the food livelihood through the diving, tourism, snorkeling, and they provide also, they're one of the main sources of the beautiful scent that we see here across the island. So it's like degradation of the reefs actually produce those scent. And it also creates a barrier towards the storm and heavy waves. Therefore, if coral reef starts to disappear, we will see also decreasing fish, therefore also in livelihood for people. And how about global warming? What's happening there to affect coral bleaching? Well, bleaching is a natural response of corals to stress. So when the temperature of the water increases above the summer maximum, we usually see a response of the coral to distress with bleaching. 
So they release this algae that live in their tissue and they have this symbiotic relationship. And when they expel this algae, they're actually their main source of food. So we see the translucent skin of the coral and their skeleton. And if the algae doesn't come back, so when the temperature goes down, it should come back. If it doesn't, the coral will probably be more exposed to other stressors, diseases, and it's like also malnutrition. So there is a high chance of mortality. And are people here in Aruba very involved in conservation? Yes, for sure. A part of the population is really active in that field. And indeed, there is many conservation institutions like Fundación Parque Nacional Aruba, who is involved in the management of the marine park. There is a local organization that I'm part of the board of Scoba Bubbles, that's involved in the restoration of corals, involving the youth of Aruba. And now there is actually an international collaboration and it really revolves around the restoration of mangroves and coral reefs. So we plan to actually implant artificial reef structure and outplant locally grown corals on this artificial reef structure to kickstart the restoration of the reefs. And what's that got to do with the mangroves? How are they involved? The idea is to restore the waterways because due to construction, we have blocked some of the waterways of the mangroves. So it results in accumulation of sediments and they start to be choked by the sediments. So the idea is to recreate these natural waterways. Now, is the growth of the mangroves or is the health of the mangroves anything to do with the coral reefs? For sure, they're intertwined. Like uh, also the species that live on corals, they also live part of their life in the water of the mangroves. Usually mangroves are used as nurseries for the fish. They are born in the mangroves, they move to seagrass and then to the coral reefs. To link the deterioration of the reefs to the deterioration of the mangroves, more research needs to be done. But there is a link between the three ecosystems, mangroves, seagrass and coral reefs. Is enough known about the sea environment in the Caribbean or have more basic fundamental studies got to be done? There is a great variability across islands. Some islands have a lot of data, a lot of research being done on them, whereas some islands actually have less data because a lot of the equipment that you need for fundamental research are quite expensive. So this actually ties in very well with an interesting project that is happening right outside here. Metabolic Foundation, they try to do a lot of citizen science projects and also to development of technology. They have maker space, they also have a van where people can go there and build their own things. There is 3D printers and tools where the students can learn how to use these technologies. One of the projects they are involved now is called Surfside Science, to build their own sensor to monitor changes in the sea. And they use also open source satellite data for the recording and the seafloor mapping. So that can be reproduced across the Caribbean with low cost equipment that everybody can build themselves through open source mechanisms. Fantastic project also. Interesting parallels with their own marine predicaments. Science being shared internationally. Pauline Newman in Aruba, a piece of paradise, they say. In the Science Show over the past six years, we've brought you many superstars of STEM. These are women who've been selected by Science and Technology Australia and trained in media, as well as being assessed as brilliant in their field. One was on early in this programme. That's Dr Taylor Sisko talking about photosynthesis. Here's another. Kirsten Beckendorf of Southern Cross University. She was on the Science Show way back. But what did we talk about then? 
Uh, we were talking about prawns and pesticides in Vietnam. Are you still in the same field? Yes, so I'm very concerned about the healthfulness of our seafood and of course our seafood is only as healthy as the environment in which it's grown. So I have been investigating pesticides in our waterways in Australia now and in our seafood. In our seafood here? So I've actually been looking at wild oysters and crabs and collecting them from our estuaries and testing them along with the water and the sediment for pesticide residues. What do they have in them? Mercury? Well, definitely a range of heavy metals. And we've found high levels of mercury in some places, nickel and chromium. But more concerning is actually the insecticides and herbicides that we're finding. I've found 21 different pesticides in Richmond River and large numbers in our oysters. So we can get on average eight different pesticides in single oyster samples. And quite a number of those are actually pesticides that are banned from use overseas. I found one pesticide that's actually banned in Australia as well. And how do you account for that? Yes, it's not good. It's not a legacy pesticide because it's one that breaks down pretty quickly in the environment, so it shouldn't be there. It's probably been stored by the farmer and is continuing to be used after the ban has actually come in. How many farmers do you think may have a similar situation, not being aware of the kind of rather dangerous material they've got that should be looked after and disposed properly? I don't think we know because I don't think we investigate it enough, but certainly in a different catchment I did find a different pesticide that's also banned, so I, I don't think the majority of farmers would do that. But I think you hit the nail on the head when you said about awareness, whether they're actually aware, and I think that a lot of farmers are probably not aware of how harmful these pesticides are to their own health let alone to the environment. I would have hoped that they're using less in the way of pesticides these days for all sorts of environmental reasons. Unfortunately the pesticide sales in Australia have doubled in the last few years. They've doubled so yeah there's actually a really large number of pesticides currently being imported and used in Australian agriculture. And we can't have genetically modified crops or anything like that which is going to make the situation less problem? Unfortunately a lot of the genetic modification is actually for herbicide resistance so they actually can encourage more pesticide use. Snookered. <laughs> I think uh, what we really need to be looking at is integrated pest management so actually bringing the predators back into our cropping systems and uh, controlling the insects a little bit more naturally. You mean they're there already they're not aliens being imported? exotic ones? No, a good natural healthy ecosystem will have a mix of insects which include predators and when the ecosystem is in balance that's probably a good way to control a lot of the pests because we will always get pests that are resistant to pesticide if you expose them to too much. So part of our problem is that we actually have large monoculture in Australia and that encourages certain types of pests that come in and you know really do a lot of damage. In the northern part of New South Wales it's been pretty rough for reasons we know very well, flooding and so on. How's the university coping? The university was quite heavily involved in that whole flood recovery activity and certainly we do have a number of funded projects at the moment looking at flood impacts and flood recovery. I've been monitoring the impacts of the flood on our estuarine systems and particularly looking at all the little invertebrates that feed the fish in the rivers and they're starting to recover which is actually a really good sign I think but it did bring down a lot of heavy metals and particularly the floods after the fires and of course the pesticides. See you in another 10 years. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Kirsten Beckendorf at the Southern Cross University near Lismore in New South Wales, doing valiant work despite the floods. She's a superstar of STEM. And here's another, just to give you an idea of the huge range of talents 
Anna Barwick is a practising pharmacist and she's doing a PhD at the University of Queensland and runs Pharma Online. Are you from a very famous Australian family? No, I'm married in and I do not know the history of my husband's family at all. Phew. <laughs> Let me just tell you a story. I, I've been most relieved that I don't have to make an appointment to get my blood pressure measured. I can go into a pharmacy and get that and also I can get my vaccines done. How long has that been going on, that sort of flexibility? Yes, there's been a, a major opening up of the scope of practice for pharmacists just in recent years, and I've been involved in a number of those trials that are actually happening across New South Wales. So we've been vaccinating for a good while, doing um, flu vaccinations for many years. With COVID happening, we then have taken on the largest proportion of COVID vaccinations across the nation. And now we are actually able to allow patients to have their immunisations on the National Immunisation Programme, which we've never done before. And so that has just started as of the 1st of November. And are the pharmacists who are overworked, you know, six, seven days a week, are they protesting? They are so excited to be able to offer more and do more. I think what we've probably seen right across the country is it's very hard to get into a GP. There are less that are now bulk billing, so it's becoming more expensive. And having that opportunity and that skill set in a community pharmacy where you can walk straight in without an appointment, I think is really exciting. My colleagues are really proud to be able to offer uh, so many more services and medications now than they ever have before. How many are worried about the fact that they need a bit of a background for instance, if I have blood pressure, do they know nothing about my history. They just know I might, who knows, get a, a drug now and then. Uh, are they worried about not having sufficient information just in case you know, someone turns up with a lawyer? Look, I think pharmacists are really good at taking medical history and medication history. That is what our main role is. So I think most pharmacists are able to work very quickly with the patient in front of them. I think we'd love to see a system like My Health Record be highly accessible so that all results, all pathology, all interactions and consultations are actually recorded there. So that's a real passion of mine is making us more digital and more digitally enabled so that people can move around the country and have the same information, medical information following them and speak to any health professional and have that information readily accessible. And when do you finish your quest? Hopefully in 2026. I still have quite a bit of my quest to go. But as I said, yeah, digital health is, is definitely my area of expertise and very much looking at the influence that I can make there and looking at new models of care that will improve healthcare outcomes across Australia. Thanks very much. Anna Barwick, another superstar of STEM, at a session hosted by SBS Television, actually. Soon some of them will be on our top 100 list, I bet. If there's room... Next week on The Science Show, something, well, as Python used to say, completely different. Here's a clue. Good morning. Ramona Koval here with The Book Show on ABC Radio National. Today, Simon Winchester joins us from New York to speak about his book, Bomb, Book and Compass, Joseph Needham and the Great Secrets of China. Needham was a scientist, uh, fantastic with languages, a great traveller, a diplomat, a socialist, a Christian, an exponent of free love, a nudist, a Morris dancer. I'm not sure if he danced the Morris dance in the nude, but I will ask. 
But most of all, he was passionate about China. As editor and co-author of Science and Civilization in China, a massive multi-volume study, he spent more than 50 years collecting and compiling evidence on China and really uh, discovered it was the birthplace of so many, many, many things from chess to cartography or and from the stirrup to the suspension bridge. Yes, Ramona, from a while ago on ABC Radio National. But what's this got to do with our top 100 scientists? Science and Civilization in China was Joseph Needham's encyclopedic account of China's achievements over thousands of years in science and technology. Well, it's up to about 24 volumes now. I've seen 23 and I've seen 24. And now more of them are in publication because people have been collaborating together after he died in 1995. And the work he undertook has been continued by the Needham Research Institute in Cambridge. And looking at the subject matter of these studies, it's quite astounding. There are volumes on mathematics and physics, mechanical engineering, civil engineering, chemistry, paper and printing, of course, physiology, military technology, alchemy, ceramics, many other things. All this from the texts of ancient China and from the mind of a very remarkable man. And that remarkable man was Joseph Needham. He reminded China, after the century there of humiliation, of their astonishing history. So we shall hear once more from Simon Winchester and his book, Bomb, Book and Compass, about how that renaissance took place in modern China. Could the same happen here? The Science Show is produced by David Fisher. I'm Robin Williams. Listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.